Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 16, The Galileo 7. Welcome, people and other people, to Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Think of this as your personal shuttlecraft of the 23rd century. Hop in and explore the wonders of the future and man's place in it. Parse out the messages, morals, and meanings of each episode of Star Trek and mind the big ugly giants with the spears. I'm your host, Ken Ray. And I'm your other host, John Champion. The crew of this shuttlecraft would like you to keep your eyes peeled, please, and report back to us what you see. Plenty of ways to do that. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. Follow us on Twitter, at missionlogpod. Hit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash missionlogpod. Skype us, missionlogpod, or pick up that old-fashioned telephone and call 323-522-5641. That is a lot of ways to get in touch with us, but don't bother pushing the call button above you. That's uh, it's actually not connected to anything. It's a prop. <laughs> but hey, hey, I, I, prop or not, we've got a shuttlecraft now. Dude, you know what's weird? We have two shuttlecraft now. I know. We've yeah. got the uh, the Galileo and the Columbia or Columbus. Columbus. Um, yes. Columbus. Yeah, Columbus. Yes. Yeah. But really, it's the Galileo on which we'll focus today. Yeah, yeah. So now, finally, we we uh, get to see what would have been so much help way back in the the heady days of the enemy within. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a it's it's kind of a the interior. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I don't know that it was the prop really that kept this out of uh, Enemy Within, as we talked about on Enemy Within. You you kind of can't have a shuttlecraft for that show, otherwise you got no show. Right. Um, right. I was surprised how sparse the interior of the uh, Galileo was. It's a whole lot of empty box yeah. with a, a whole lot of nothing else. Yeah, except yeah. for some really comfy chairs. Yeah, you got a few comfy <laughs> chairs. You got you know, the <laughs> ante room, the foyer in the back, if you will. <laughs> and uh, and apparently those engines are really, really powerful because they're tiny. Yeah, well. You don't need to have a lot of propulsion on that thing at all. Well, apparently you do need a lot of propulsion, and that becomes part of the problem, but we can get to the problem when we actually get to the story. And before we get to that, how about a little trivia? Oh, how about a little trivia? <laughs> so first and foremost, Yeoman Rand. Uh, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to do this to you, Ken. Yeah, it's Yeoman Rand, she's still gone. Yeah. Um, it's actually Yeoman Mears. Oh, she'll be back. Uh, Well, she would have been back uh, because Yeoman Mears' role was written as Yeoman Rand. uh, But yet again, Grace Lee was off the show. Once you share that trivia with me, it makes total sense. Mm -hmm. I can see it. There's a level of concern from Yeoman Mears uh, that that you would expect from Yeoman Rand. But when Yeoman Mears is like, oh, Captain, I was so worried. I halfway expect the Captain to go, I'm sorry. And you are again? Right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but the the other cool trivia about this show to me is all about that prop, that big empty box that says Galileo painted on it and a couple of warp nacelles mm-hmm. uh, on the bottoms. Um, they built that full-size shuttlecraft prop, and, and it's huge. And uh, they park it there on their planet set. And uh, it was designed and built by an automobile customizer, Gene Winfield. Um, he was working for AMT 
at the time. And I thought this was really cool. I didn't realize this is how things worked back then. Um, the AMT provided the design and construction of that prop for free to the production in the exchange for making Star Trek model kits. So, yeah, so you can avoid those giant license fees. And and who knows, you know, Star Trek was in its infancy. Who knows if it was going to be a hit or not? Who knows if people were going to buy these toys? But they could say, all right, well, we'll take a gamble on it, if you will, and kind of let us take over the license for it, and we'll make those props. And now I have to wonder, well, how long did that last? Was it in perpetuity? Because we've had Star Trek model kits now for 46 years. I don't know. There is actually a place yeah. near my, well, not near my house, but there's a place I go to from time to time that has Star Trek model kits. So I'll actually check. Mm-hmm. Well, they've got one. <laughs> well, I remember as a kid going through a lot of AMT model kits. You know, they, they had the, the stuff that came out back at the time, mm-hmm. uh, the Enterprise and the Galileo and Spock shooting a snake on a planet. Stuff like that, you know, weird stuff. But then later on when it was AMT Ertl and they were making the movie kits and uh, just all kinds of stuff. And, uh, yeah, so that, all those AMT kits, they hold a, a fun place in my heart. Um, but Gene Winfield, he built a lot of other important movie cars. Uh, Blade Runner, a little movie you may be familiar with. And one of my favorite TV show cars, which was the car from The Man From U.N.C.L.E., and that was really cool. It was this very low profile, very sleek, kind of light blue car with gull wing doors. Really, really cool looking. And apparently it was just a, a nightmare to drive. Um, so they kind of abandoned that from the show. So here's the cool thing about that giant prop, that life-size Galileo shuttlecraft. Um, they built it for the show and then it was just sort of left out in a parking lot or something. Nobody <laughs> knew what to do with it. All right. <laughs> Whose shuttle is this? People would I, say. Ah, exactly. It's just um, been there. And it took a beating. Um, and then finally, I want to say this is in the late 80s. Uh, somebody found it and restored it. And I think they sent it to a convention or two. And then it got lost and nearly destroyed again. And finally, July of 2012, it was put up for auction again by the current owner. There were so many owners, it changed hands a lot of times. And uh, Alec Peters, a bunch of the guys from PropWorks, um, they bought it. I think it was about 70 grand that they paid for it. And now they've got Gene Winfield back, the man who designed and built this thing, to help with the restoration process. So hopefully we won't go through this cycle again where it is restored and then on the brink of disaster and then restored again. Hopefully this is the last time that happens. And we'll have this this piece of TV history from the original Star Trek. I think that's so cool. It sounds like the Galileo has been through a lot over the years, but what happened on its first adventure? Prologue. The Enterprise is on its way to deliver some medical supplies when it happens across Morisaki 312, a quasar-like formation. With standing orders to investigate such things, the Enterprise decides to do so, against the wishes of Galactic High Commissioner Ferris, on board to make sure the medical supplies get to where they need to be when they need to be there. But hey, they've got three days. What could go wrong? 
Well, quite a bit, as it turns out. Spock and a crew of six take the shuttle Galileo to investigate the Morisaki and almost immediately meet trouble. An ion storm does in the shuttle's sensors and controls. As a result of the storm, the Enterprise loses Galileo. Now they have no sensors, no communications, and two days to find a 24-foot ship in an area the size of four solar systems. Can you believe that's all prologue? Act 1. Galactic High Commissioner Ferris pulls a big I told you so on Kirk, something he'll do throughout the episode. Uhura finds a planet, Tarsus 2, capable of supporting life, and right in the middle of the Morisaki thing, and so the Enterprise heads towards it. We check in on the Galileo, which does appear to have crashed on Tarsus 2. While the shuttle is damaged, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, Boma, Latimer, Gaetano, and Mears are all fine. And so Spock, as commanding officer, puts him to work, Scotty to fixing the ship, Latimer and Gaetano to scouting the surroundings. High above, the Enterprise has made it to Tarsus too, but with no transporters and no communications, all they can do is send another shuttle, the Columbus, to see if it can find Galileo. Back on Tarsus too, Bones notes that this is Spock's first shot at command, a chance to put his ever-loving logic to the test. Spock pretty much greets this with an, eh, Scotty says they don't have enough fuel to lift off unless they ditch 500 pounds of weight. Spock says that would be three of the crew members, though Bones thinks maybe they could toss some equipment instead. The sort of good news, there's one less man to worry about. Latimer and Gaetano hear something as they're scouting about. All of a sudden, a ridiculously large spear ends up in Latimer's back. The Galileo 7 are now the Galileo 6. Act 2. Having heard Latimer's scream, Spock and Boma find a despondent Gaetano sitting over Latimer's body. Holy crap, that's a huge spear. Spock starts analyzing the situation, which irks Boma because, hi, dead crew member. Spock doesn't seem to get the concern, but says they can bring his body back for burial if they want to. On the Enterprise, Kirk keeps the Columbus out on the search, though he confides to the captain's log that he's losing hope. And Ferris is still tapping his watch. Back to Tarsus 2, where it's time to bury Latimer. Boma asks Spock to say a few words with his being captain here, though Spock declines, saying that the work he's doing on Galileo may help them all live, so he sends Bones to do the eulogy. Logical, but not great for morale. Also doesn't seem to have been a big help. During the repair, a fuel line gives. Scotty seems ready to give up, though Spock tells him to consider the alternatives. There are always alternatives. Outside, there's trouble. They can hear whatever threw the really big spear at Latimer, and it sounds like there are lots of them. Everyone decides the best course of action is a display of force, but Spock wants them scared, not killed. After giving the creatures a light show with the phasers, Spock takes Boma back to Galileo, leaving Gaetano to keep an eye out for more of the creatures. I'm sure that's going to be fine. Back at Galileo, Scotty has an idea. They can use the phasers as an alternative fuel source. On the upside, they'll be able to leave the planet, though the downside, without phasers to defend themselves, they may not live long enough to leave the planet. Above, the Enterprise gets transporters working and begins sending down search parties, though that'll do Gaetano no good as he's attacked by one of the big uglies. Act 3. Going to collect Gaetano's phaser, Bones, Spock, and Boma find the phaser, but no Gaetano. Spock gives Boma and Bones both his and Gaetano's phaser for Scotty, then goes off to find Gaetano's body, which he does. The Galileo 6, or now the Galileo 5. Spock carries Gaetano's body back to Galileo, narrowly avoiding death by spear. Upon his return, Spock finds an angry McCoy. His logical assessment was incorrect. Scaring the big uglies did not keep them away. In fact, it seems to have made them more angry and more antagonistic. Way to go, logic! Here, Spock goes into a logic loop worthy of the android Dr. Roger Corby. He's flummoxed that logic has failed him, and he's lost two crewmen, and now everybody's mad at him, too. 
plus the ship's being beaten with a boulder by one of the big uglies. Snapping out of it, Spock comes up with a way to get the beast away from the ship, at least for the time being. With danger abated, Spock suggests they keep lightening the load, starting with Gaetano's body. Boma says, sure, as long as they can bury him. Spock says, fine, as long as it's safe to do. Above, time's up. They have to call off the search and deliver that medicine. Landing parties return, and yikes! Really big, ugly guys threw really big spears at us. So there may be no point in looking for Galileo anyway. Act 4. Enterprise heads away from Tarsus 2. Slowly. And with sensors pointed toward Tarsus 2, just in case. Galileo, meanwhile, is good to go, and Spock gives them ten minutes to bury Gaetano. They get that done, but suddenly... Big uglies. They throw boulders, and one of the boulders traps Spock. He tells Bones and Boma to get to the ship, but they come and save him instead. All three of them get to the ship, but it's being held down by, you guessed it, big uglies. They have to use more fuel than they would like to have to leave the planet. In orbit, Spock lectures Bones and Boma on the foolishness of having come after him. Now they'll probably all die. With the extra fuel they burn, they'll luckily only be able to stay in orbit for about 45 minutes. Then Spock has an idea that he doesn't share with anyone. He jettisons all of the fuel, which lights up in a trail behind them. The Enterprise sees it, hangs a Yui, comes back and beams the Galileo 7. I'm sorry, the Galileo 6. I'm sorry, the Galileo 5. To safety. The end. So we're down to the Galileo 5. And (laughs) all I can think about is, uh, man, Commissioner Ferris. Is that the kind of guy that that Starfleet hires these days? He's kind of of a hard ass. No, he's kind of a jerk. Yeah, he's a lot of a jerk. Well, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, Commissioner Ferris is the left hand, right? Yeah. And everything else is the right hand. So, I mean, he's got this job to do. And admittedly, his job is an important job. There's apparently a plague. <laughs> right, yeah. And the Enterprise has to get, you know, get stuff to them. At the same time, I mean, this is worthy, worthy of the HAL 9000. HAL didn't want to kill Frank, but sure. HAL had conflicting orders. So he ended up killing Frank to carry out his mission. This is not quite on that level, but uh, Kirk says that they've got a standing order to investigate all quasars and quasar-like formations, which is kind of a, it's a crazy order. <laughs> well, I, I buy it, but I mean, it's not like we don't know where those are. I mean, it's, you know, this is not, yeah. you know, this is not like, you know, I, I turned the corner and there was a guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. We can spot quasar and quasar like formations from fairly far away. I would think, I mean, especially That's if there is, true. especially if they're as big as four solar systems. Yeah. At least we can in the 23rd century. I don't know. Maybe I'll turn a corner tomorrow and there will be a quasar like formation. Um, <laughs> Point is, uh, Kirk has two sets of orders. One is get this medicine there, and the other is stop and look these things over whenever you see them. Right. So, I, and 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 um, Ferris seems to be on one end of that. Yeah. You know, because he's got uh, well, his what I do thing, like and that's here it. Is that this episode has a lot of action and a lot of suspense. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I love the interplay between Kirk and Ferris, and I love the interplay between Spock and his crew. So, you know, it, it, all the, the whole thing about the medicine and the whole thing about the quasar, these are all just the MacGuffins to get us into the story. And right. the story is about how all of these people handle a crisis, you know. Yes. So I really enjoyed it from from that respect. Um, but there's one little thing that kind of irked me, that kind of bugged me. <laughs> and that's the, the ending. Because, yeah. it, you know, we really took 
Star Trek to task with uh, shore leave. And, the, uh, and the, the laugh at the end? Yeah, the big yeah. laugh at the end. And here we have another big laugh at the end. And I feel like the strongest episodes so far that we've been able to watch are, are the ones that really kind of don't sit that well when they end. I love the ambiguous ending, and I love kind of the tragic ending. Um, it, Charlie X is a great example of that. Yeah. Um, a, a less ambiguous ending was um, the Corbomite maneuver, um, but it, it was just sort of an ending that left you with, oh, there's something else about to happen here. And which one was it again that um, oh, they were getting married and then they got dead instead? One of them did. <laughs> of course, uh, Balance of Terror. Balance of Terror. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, that one. That one yeah. gave you a lot, but even at the end there, even though we get the sense that everything's going to be okay, yeah, we've pretty much ended with, sorry about your fiance. Yeah. Um, so that kind of tacked on thing, you know, again, it's the limitations of 1960s TV, yeah, TV writing and what they felt like they had to write. Um, but, I, it, you know, everything that just happened and uh, Spock's, reaction to it is not the funniest thing that just happened to you (laughs) (laughs) i'm pretty sure it's not and and if it is the 23rd century needs better comedians yeah well you know i mean and we can beat star trek up about this because we're you know we're in the habit of either beating up or praising star trek but i mean this was something that was very common in television in the 60s and 70s right right i I mean to the point that if you watch um police squad and not the movies, but if you watch the TV show Police Squad, they they would parody, you know, sort of the laugh at the end, and then something would happen that would make it kind of uncomfortable for somebody. Like like yes. they have, they would actually. My favorite one in Police Squad was when they all have the big group laugh, and then they all go into freeze frame, <laughs> yeah. except for one character. One character is is not in freeze frame, and so he he doesn't know what to do, and so he yes. keeps trying to freeze. To sort of <laughs> to sort of to be part of it. Um, Does it reveal too much if I tell you that I do that in my real life all the time? <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, we can beat up Star Trek about it, but I mean, really, it's just—I mean, it was—it was—it was something that happened on TV at the time. So yeah, maybe we—you know—maybe we cut them a tiny bit of slack when we talk about it. Although you're right, internally, I'm—I'm I'm hating it every time I see the big group laughing. <laughs> right, right. Lots of excitement in this episode, and big scary uglies, but do they bring messages, or just gigantic spears? So I have to return to this thing here, Ken, that's been bothering me. Mm -hmm. If the Enterprise is on a mission, at that moment, to deliver medical supplies, they should really just be delivering medical supplies. (laughs) Okay, if I'm in an accident... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I'm bleeding on the street corner. I don't want the ambulance driver to be late and say, oh, I'm so sorry. But there was this really cool thing that we had to stop and check out. Well, I, I mean, you're oversimplifying it in a, in a couple of <laughs> I ways. Know, I, I mean, know, but, but but like you said, OK, a and, quasar yeah. is a very big phenomenon. Yeah. You, you can see that from a very long way away. It'll still be there when they get back. They last billions of years, don't they? Well, I don't know. I'm not. Okay. I'm not. I mean, I, we know a couple of scientists that we could call and ask, but sure. I, I know nothing about quasars. Um, okay. Here's what I will say, though. I mean, an ambulance has one job. That's to help the sick, right? Yeah. Uh, the Enterprise has several jobs. Next week, 
the enterprise is going to be running uh, supplies from one place to another. And then, yeah. you know, there have been times where I mean, the, the, last week or a few weeks ago, the Enterprise was defending uh, all of space against the Romulans. You know, right. so, I mean, it, right. it's a it's not quite a Swiss Army knife, but it's got a lot of things that it has to do. The other thing is uh, the Enterprise was not actually taking. And I don't understand this part unless it's, again, as you said, the MacGuffin earlier. Mm-hmm. The Enterprise was not actually taking these supplies to the place where the um, plague is. Good news, by the way. We still have plagues in the 23rd century (laughs) where we can get them. Um, They were taking it to a ship that was going to take the supplies there. So let's say the Enterprise did not stop and investigate the Quasar and they went ahead. They would have been three days early. So they still would have been sitting around someplace. So there's no reason for Kirk to think that, you know, they don't have plenty of time to stop because, you know, what could go wrong? Except, of course, he was on television when he said it. So everything (laughs) <laughs> well, there, there could have been a lovely quasar in that area where they're going to meet the other ship. I'm uh, we, just saying. We know that Space that's not the case. Big. We know that that's not the case. Come on. Quasars <laughs> are huge, as you pointed out earlier. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I, I get what you're saying. It's not – I mean, yeah, you would want to prioritize, I suppose. <laughs> but if you think you've got time, I mean, if your choice is, you know, get there three days early and then just sit and wait or, you know, stop and do something on the way, why wouldn't you? Right. Well, and and it all goes back to, again, the the convention of TV writing. You know, if we didn't have to stop to check out that Quasar, there would have been no show. Right. So uh, I'm kind of okay with that. But it it, it does seem – it just seems a little forced. That's all I'm saying. But (laughs) but that is the MacGuffin. Well, the forced part is actually Mm -hmm. Ferris. Why why is he there? Why is Ferris there? I mean, unless unless he is yeah. going along with the medical supplies and he's going to hop on that other ship and then he's actually going to go to the Paris colony to make sure that the plague gets cured. But I'm sorry, I didn't hear Dr. Ferris anywhere. No. I heard Galactic High Commander. And by the way, how do you get that job? Because he yeah. apparently, I don't guess he was Federation. I don't guess he was Starfleet. Well, he's it, just a I, high I commander of the galaxy. Of the points in Star Trek where we had kind of semi-defined what the the structure yeah. was, but we hadn't really put a name on it. It's kind of like that moment in this episode when Kirk says that we're, we're traveling at space normal speed. Yeah, I love. So that. we hadn't quite come up with all the terminology yet. Well, <laughs> they're not they're not going at warp. Yeah, yeah. Do you think Do you think by the way um, that um, Ferris worked for Space Central? Oh, hey, there you go. There you go. And by the way, if I've got a plague and I'm on the new Paris colony, um, I don't know if I want uh, uh, Commissioner Ferris's growling face administering the medicine to me. There was something weird about Ferris. I I honestly thought at one point that this whole thing was going to end up having been concocted by Galactic High Command just to see how everything went. Because mm-hmm. his 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 read his his delivery and maybe I'm just bashing the actor now or the director and I apologize if that either of those is the case. I kept expecting another shoe to drop from Ferris, and it turns out he's just got the one shoe that he keeps dropping over and over again. Yeah, you got two days. Up, oh, you got one day. Oh, you got six hours. Now you got right. two. You know, I mean, he's he's really he's just uh, he's he's like an annoying Jiminy Cricket. Well, no, not even Jiminy Cricket because at least he was a conscience. Ferris is just you know. Yeah, we got to do what we got to do. And yet, if you if you parse out, I mean, you could kind of maybe if we look at this episode as 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 a study in command, there are a few different ways that you can do that or or what it takes to be a leader, I suppose. I mean, there were times when I thought it, I mean, it reminded me a bit of you need. Well, certainly one of the lessons is you need more than logic. 
right? Mm-hmm. Which yeah. kind of is a throwback to uh, some of what we heard in, uh, forgive me, uh, the paper means that I'm looking for notes that I actually wrote. It, it's ca- <laughs> kind of a kind of a, a throwback to a trait or needing more than one trait a la um, enemy within, right? Yeah. We can't yeah. have just the, oh, I think everything out and I'm fine, but I get Logie Kirk as opposed to the, you know – yeah, brandy swilling. Where's Yeoman Rand? Speaking of which, <laughs> speaking of which, where is Yeoman Rand? Right. Um, you know, uh, sort of passion versus versus psyche. I can't think yeah. of the exact terminology. So it sort of seems like that. Um, it's sort of an examination of command, a la balance of terror, mm-hmm. a little bit. Like, okay, so here's one guy leading, and here's another guy leading, and how are they going to do those two guys being Kirk and Spock? Um, but you've kind of got the same duality playing on board the Enterprise, right? Where where Ferris is just a logically, we got a job to do, and Kirk is more the, but I've got this other thing that I have to do because of these people. Right, right. Well, I, I think you kind of need to have the Ferris character there for that because if it, every time we cut back to the Enterprise, mm-hmm. it would just be Kirk sort of internalizing this thing about their deadline to get to New Paris Colony. Nobody else on the ship is going to call him out about it. Uhura is not going to be back there reminding him, hey, you got to leave, you got to leave, because <laughs> she knows that Kirk's, uh, Kirk's mission at that point will be to rescue his crew members. So right. we, we set up these two contrasts, and we put Kirk firmly in the middle of that. So I'm, I'm kind of okay with the idea, but Ferris has played very strangely. Um. Yeah, You know, again, maybe a different writing approach or a different directing approach to that character would have would have made it more acceptable to you. But I, I like what we're doing here with Kirk because we make him much more multifaceted through yeah. all of this. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that you nailed it here. And that's the thing that I kept getting out of this episode is that this is about compassion and command and leadership being more than logic. We've got Spock um, in the in the shuttlecraft on the planet dealing with crisis after crisis, and he seems so ill-equipped to deal with it other than fixing the physical problems of the shuttlecraft. And I, I have to wonder, is this just another sort of condemnation of the Vulcan way, as you so like to point out. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. I would actually go completely the opposite on this episode, though. I don't know who I am sometimes, honestly. Neither do I. There were the old things. Yeah. There (laughs) there were things that happened where I was like, no, Spock's right. There's no way he should have been pulled away from what he was doing to say a few words over a guy that he hardly knew. Mm. I understand it was bad for morale, but I mean, you know, leaving Bones there to help Scotty was not going to help get them off the planet. Spock has knowledge that Bones does not have. Bones is actually, as we've you know, talked about many times before, a much more salt of the earth, you know, every man kind of guy anyway. So he would actually be the better person. Logically, he would be the better person to speak over, uh, to speak over Latimer's grave. Um, still doesn't sit well with the crew. Yeah. Now, at the same time, oh, and also, and ditching Gaetano's body. same thing at the same time though one kind of has to call um alien animal excrement on Mm. uh some of the logic that he you know pretends to have exercised all the way through there is absolutely no logical reason for spock to go after gaetano's body it's almost Mm. like um and as i was watching it i was thinking it's almost like he suffers from uh, uh, uh the bystander effect where you know if there are people around to do something 
there's actually less likelihood that anybody's going to do anything because there's always somebody around to do it, right? Oh, yeah, right. And yeah. so so a lot of times you'll get horrible things happening while there are tons of people there because nobody's doing anything because nobody's doing anything to stop it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. With Spock, it's almost like if there are other people around to be human, cool, then he doesn't have to be human. He can go ahead mm-hmm. and be Vulcan. He can go ahead and be logical. If, on the other hand, he's by himself, he'll be a mensch. Instead of a robot, which is kind of weird, right? Because and and Bones mentions it to Boma as they're getting ready to go back to uh, to deliver the phasers. He uh, Bones says something to the effect of, "I don't get it. He'll he'll risk his own life to find Gaetano, and then when he finds him, he's just as likely to you know tell him to stay right where he is." Right. I mean, right. there's there's something. I mean, so there there is actually there is an, an innate humanity in Spock. Um, but when there are other people around, he's all logic all the time. So who knows? Maybe he would have gotten himself off the planet like, you know, days earlier (laughs) had he he been by himself and he not had to be the logical thing for other people. But but here's the problem though. I mean, so it's early in Star Trek. We we are 16 episodes in to the broadcast order and we're getting to know Spock still. And we we haven't been introduced to everything about his character yet. Um, But we're seeing these glimpses of humanity in him. Um, But regardless of that, didn't he go through the same training as Kirk? You know, didn't didn't he have to go through kind of uh, Starfleet Command 101 to get to where he is? Because it seems like... I don't know. We're playing to Spock's strengths. Absolutely. Um, If there is a problem to be solved, a mechanical, logical thing to be solved, he's going to be great at that. We we know that. Absolutely. Um, But it seems like uh, as a matter of survival, as a matter of these are potential dangers or potential situations you will face. um, He's not doing too great a job here. And it seems like logically he would have processed the idea very early on. Oh, wait, I've got a ship full of humans here. I'm in command. I'm responsible for them. I need to do all the physical stuff to get the ship out of here and get us out of danger. But I also need to maintain a level of um, cohesion among the group. And he's failing every instance in doing that. And... um, I, you know, maybe that's why he's first officer for so long, you know? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, you know, okay, yes and no. Yes. Did he have the same training? Sure. But there's a big difference. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there, there's book smarts and then there's people smarts. Yeah. Right? And um, yeah, Spock hasn't always displayed the people smarts. And sometimes we all laugh about that heartily at the end of an episode. <laughs> and but you know other times that's actually going to end up it might end up costing you right yeah um in the twentieth century and and the twenty first century and certainly you know before that in different things but I'll just go corporate uh, there are plenty of times in the twentieth century or the twenty first century that somebody got hired to run either an organization or part of an organization and everybody thought this is going to be awesome and on paper it looks like it's going to be a great idea and then you know. They actually then get to run the company and they either underperform or they perform stupidly. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, again, book smarts versus people smarts or book smarts versus real world intelligence. Um, not necessarily not necessarily the same thing. Sure. A little surprising, though, that, you know, that, that after what is it? 
I mean, I can't remember how long now, according to the canon, Spock has been uh, in Starfleet. It is a little surprising, though, after so long as a second officer, or first officer, excuse me, second in command, that this is actually his first time commanding. Yeah. Well, he's been around at least 13 years because that's how long it was back when he served with Pike. Yeah, but he wasn't second in command there. Well, true. Yeah. So, I mean, he worked his way up. We have we've seen a bit of evolution. Right. right. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of weird. They they do the whole thing pointing out uh, Bones actually points out to Spock that, the, you know, this is his first this is his first command. Yeah. Really? <laughs> <laughs> that's a little uh, that's a little surprising. Well, maybe, like I said, you know, some early uh, assessment training of Spock. They're like, eh, if we can avoid having him in command, let's uh, let's wait until maybe a better situation. You know, yeah, maybe. there's one other there's one other thing in the story that kind of confuses me. I'm not sure if it ends up being one of the points or not. But mm-hmm. at the end, and I, I mentioned the fact that Spock did not share his plan with anyone for jettisoning, jettisoning the fuel and, you know, lighting up the night sky. Or the space sky with the uh, with with the fuel that uh, what little fuel Galileo has left. I wouldn't expect him to share that information with anyone because there's really no time. It's sort of a you know spur of the moment. I've got an idea kind of thing. Everybody treats it like it's the biggest gamble ever. Like it was like it was a crazy maneuver. Mm-hmm. But it was logical. They've got 45 yeah. minutes left to live if they don't do something. And so he, yeah. may, he may well have reduced their amount of time exponentially. But, um, you know, it makes sense. Like sending up a flare, as Scotty says. Well, and maybe that's why they're all kind of okay with it. You know, they, they, they've experienced all these uh, you know, potential moments of death up until that point. Right. And they, they all kind of have this calm over them after he does it you know mccoy is just back there kind of patting him on the back like hey good job bucko (laughs) (laughs) you know (laughs) yes oh well he he actually says that um he actually calls um spock's action totally human yeah yeah he deems spock's last action totally human uh spock says it's totally illogical that there was absolutely no chance and bone says that's exactly what i mean well it's the only chance i don't i don't i don't really get that 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 logic escapes me. Yeah. How they treat him like, you know, and then they make fun of him for being so human. They kind of make fun of him and they're also grateful. It's good yeah, that, you yeah. know, it's good to see that he actually is a mensch with 30 <laughs> seconds to live. Right. <laughs> well, it, it seems like there's a lot of uh, Spock not sharing his plans with people. Uh, certainly, oh, the menagerie. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he's a sort of acting on his own. And and here in Galileo 7, not just that moment, um, but earlier on, he's sort of calculating all of these things, but not necessarily letting on what the big picture is. Um, and, and you'd think that he would have learned a little bit You know, that his fellow crew members, Kirk, somebody says, hey, uh, Spock, you know, you kind of have to uh, you kind of have to open up to us a little here. You have to let us know what's going on. Um because it, it seems like, again, maybe this is a, a command thing. It seems like as a leader, you have to share your vision <laughs> with your constituents. You have to share what your plans are with the people who are under your care. Spock acts rogue a lot. Well, um, okay, mm-hmm. there are two different things, though. In the menagerie, he's acting rogue because he knows that they'll stop him and he's got something that he's decided he's going to do. Yeah, Lo- and, and I, I think in this is more distraction. 
he doesn't want to be bothered with the distraction of the others around him. Well, but I don't. It, I mean, it's it's illogical that he would have to explain everything. I mean, they have a they have a chain of command, and he's at the head of it. So you don't need to know. And that may sound, I mean, that sounds cold and inhuman, but hi, he's cold and inhuman. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So logically, he doesn't have to explain himself, so he's not necessarily going to. Now he does a couple of times, but, you know, he doesn't really see any need to. There's one other thing, and it's kind of interesting, and I don't know that it speaks to Spock's humanity, but it does speak, I think, to Spock's idealism. Um, so there are these big, ugly things, right, with these giant spears and the ability mm -hmm. to throw boulders. And we you know, find out later they can actually hold a spaceship down. Mm -hmm. We don't see them do that. And I kind of wish we had because that would have been at least funny to see them go flying off once, you know, <laughs> Galileo right, right. does get up enough steam to leave the planet. But we've got these big things here. Uh, they've already killed. No, they haven't killed anybody yet. Or have they? No, yeah. they have. They've already killed Latimer. And Spock says, all right, all right, so we got to do something. But I don't want to hurt them. So what we're going to do instead is scare them, and they will understand that we could hurt them, which, mm -hmm. is, which is a flaw in his logic, because, I mean, a light show is a light show. And, you know, unless they actually see it tear something apart, they're not going to know sure. that that's anything. He's still got this ideal, right? He's still got the Starfleet ideal. We're not going to kill these things. There's no need to kill these things. It's silly to kill when you don't need to. Um, logically... I would think that he would decide, yeah, maybe we should kill these things or they're going to kill us. Mm -hmm. Where's his logic there? Where be his logic now? Right. I ask you. I, I, I have no answer for that. <laughs> <because> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, is it so uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I found, as you said earlier, it sort of seemed like an indictment of the Vulcan way. At the same time, um, it sort of seemed to be in praise of it. I mean, this episode goes back and forth on logic versus humanity i mean logically the, logically what spock did should have gotten them off the planet at the same time acting human you know made it worse for them and letting those things live right the ones that were right nearby so i don't i found that 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 message kind of mixed but I, I i do think you know it does it does uh bring up a lot of a lot of fascinating uh fascinating points to ponder yeah well i mean it, you know again this all goes back to that contrast between him and Kirk and and we've we've set all of this up so many times where and we will get to it again and again over the course of our show but you've got the you've got logical Spock you've got passionate McCoy and you've got Kirk in the middle to make decisions and Kirk is also struggling with this on the ship as well the the logical thing for me to do maybe at a certain point is to assume that my crew members are dead and I have to carry on with the mission. But the passionate thing to do is to keep searching until I know that they can't be found. And I like how they throw us a bone there where we've sent other rescue crews out who have come back and they've said it's terrible. We, we lost another crewman. There are these monsters with the spears and they, they're basically saying there is no hope. Um, but that, that human part of Kirk that is the passionate part of Kirk that isn't just solely going by the book says, well, I'm going to hold on until the very last second. So ultimately <laughs> I like how this is, uh, I, I like how this is a look at um, differences in command style. And you, you brought it up again with uh, balance of terror, you know, it, 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 so much of this points to how good of a leader Kirk is. Mm -hmm. 
With five of the Galileo 7 back aboard the Enterprise, does the story they brought back with them bear repeating today? Time now to do that thing we do, wrap up the show with a few questions, asking whether um, whether the whole shebang uh, stands the test of time. Uh, let's start with uh, the production. Let's start with the episode itself. Let's, let, let's start with the bowl of popcorn and 48 minutes of fun ahead of us. Do we have 48 minutes of fun? Does this episode stand up in your opinion, Mr. Champion? I think so for the most part. Um, like I said earlier, it's full of good tension and good character moments. And we're, we're seeing a lot about Spock and we're seeing a lot about Kirk. Um, I, you know, it feels like there may be a little too much back and forth here. Um, every now and then it feels like padding, um, but not all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only occasionally that it feels that way. Um, it, the production values, I'd say on the plus side, that exterior shot of the Galileo shuttlecraft on the planet looks really great. When they come out of it, it looks really great. The interior, that's a big empty box. Um, yeah. And then the uh, we get little <laughs> glimpses of the giants on the planet, and they kind of look like the Cyclops from Lost in Space. Um, yeah. But we don't see a lot of them. But these are production value things that kind of can't be helped. Um, but as far as just entertainment, yeah, I, I think it's right up there. It mostly holds up. And I had a good time watching the episode. How about you? Um, there, uh, There's a lot of stuff that I like about this episode. Um, I like Boma. And I like Boma for a couple of reasons. Um First of all, he's a strong character, and second, he's a strong African-American character. And mm-hmm. 1966, there are parts of the country that aren't going to be too happy with, um, you know, an African-American guy standing up so so vehemently uh, to a white guy who's over him. Now, it is worth noting that the white guy is actually a Vulcan. <laughs> so, yeah, right. I mean, who knows if they would have had him standing up quite the same way to Kirk, and who knows if that would have flown with people. I don't know. But I like Boma's character quite a bit. Um, I wish Ferris had been played differently, but what are you going to do? You yeah. Know? Um, it was, it, yeah, it was good. I thought it was a really, I thought it was a really good episode. It's, um, you could find little things to fault it for, but overall, yeah. I think it was, overall, I think it was, uh, overall, I think it was well done. I, I agree. And we should have mentioned more of Boma. Uh, earlier on because I really do like his character and, and I think it has acted really well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I enjoyed very much seeing him. Um, so yeah, but, but what about the message here? You know, do we have a message? What do you think? Nah, I don't think there's a particular message. I mean, it seems to be, to be more of a character study and that's both, you know, the character of Spock and maybe a little bit the character of Kirk. It's really more of a study of Spock's character at this point, but also a character study in general as far as like the character of command, you know, or the or the or the process of command. It seems to be more uh, that kind of study. I mean, you can mm-hmm. make messages if you want to, like the you know just logic won't do it kind of thing. You know, uh, going back to things like the Enemy Within, mm-hmm. where we say you know you can't just have one or the other. It, it takes more than just you know one set of traits uh, to make a good leader. I don't feel like that's no, that's hitting you over the head though. I mean, this is not 
we haven't done this in a while. It's not a you see Timmy, you know. It's not a it's yeah. not a it's not a save the whales. It's not a your enemy is actually not that bad a guy when you get to know him. It, right. it, it's more just sort of like, uh, well, here's an interesting situation. What do you suppose? What do you suppose? Uh, what do you suppose we can learn? Uh, you know about you know this whole thing. It's a it's an examination more than a um, and the moral of the story is. At least that's my opinion. What about you? You know, as you're saying that, I'm I'm going back to my comment about um, Spock having the same training as Kirk, but but yet he acts out his command so differently. And we're saying that there's really not a strong message here, but all I can picture is like a, like a corporate training seminar, and they show this episode, you know, to try to get people to understand. Well, let's see in a in a leadership situation, do I want to be more like Spock or do I want to be more like Kirk? <laughs> you know, um, there are little things to glean here, but that, that's not what it's about. You know, don't be a jerk to your subordinates. Show compassion in a leadership situation. Um, you can't purely uh, approach that with logic because sometimes, well, you need compassion instead of logic. logic. And um, sometimes you have to act purely on your gut. And even though you say that it is a logical thing that Spock does at the end, in the moment that he does it, I, I still think there's something about it that is a gut reaction. And hopefully, hopefully you're right. Remember, they had a very small chance of that actually working out. <laughs> they had no idea if the Enterprise was still there. Yeah, but so, they, had a, they had a 100% chance of uh, burning up on reentry yeah, if they yeah. didn't do something. I mean, it's logical at that point, too. I mean, it would not have been logical to start beating your head against the wall, but no. you know, anything that's going to do anything that's going to affect anything outside of the Galileo is a good shot at that point or the best shot they have anyway. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, we could actually say that the message is the one that you started with. You got a job to do, do your job and don't get distracted by shiny objects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because if they had just gone ahead, yeah, they're going to be three days early, but if they just gone ahead... Again, they have yeah. the standing order, though. They've got the standing order. Hey, if you see something particularly shiny, stop and look at it. Right. I mean, it's actually, <laughs> right. it's in their orders. So, yeah. but maybe, maybe that, maybe that's the issue. You got a job to do. Do your job. And you come back to the quasar. <laughs> It'll still be there, and you can spend all week looking for a lost shuttlecraft. I don't know. We actually need to call our scientist friends and find out if the quasar will definitely still be there. <laughs> right. But, well, does know. the message hold up? If there is a message here. Well, I mean, since we've said you can kind of make your own message, <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not a completely make your own message thing, but yeah, I mean, the ones that we talked about, uh, compassion, command, not just being a, not just being a, 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 a uh, what are you, a robot? Yeah, exactly. I mean, not just, <laughs> not just being somebody who just goes by the book, not just being somebody who goes letter of the law, not just being somebody who is only about logic. I mean, adding a little bit of, you know, compassion, if not humanity. Um, yeah, I mean, you would hope that everybody would do that. You would hope everybody could do that. But I mean, that feels like, I mean, you're right. It, it does sort of become a corporate seminar thing <laughs> if we want to make that the message. So if you want to make that the message, sure, you hope it stands up. But I think I'm actually fine saying there's no one message here. It's just sort of an interesting study of the situation. And I totally agree. I, I don't think it's a heavy message episode. I just think it, it gives us a few uh, styles, uh, uh, a picture in contrast, uh, something to, to study with that. But yeah, it's not a message. But hey, you know what I'm looking forward to? Wait, um, wait, can, wait. 
Wait, I'll tell you what, what I'm looking forward to, dude. What's that? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm donning the eyeliner. I'm donning uh, the black clothing. I'm uh, firing up the Bauhaus. We're going goth next week. Oh, we are. Yeah. Aren't we? Well, because I was going to say that I always think that Star Trek is missing harpsichords. There are not nearly enough harpsichords in Star Trek. So I don't understand. It's the Squire of Goth, right? Oh, no, no, no. It's the Squire of Gothos. Ah. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Ha ha ha. Ha ha ha. No, John and Ken are right, the big laugh to end the show does not work. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.